This is a Life and Times video game soundbite. I'm Richard Moss. The early years of the American video game industry were defined in large part by a war between two huge companies, the market leader Atari and the deep-pocketed upstart Mattel, which was trying to shoehorn its way into this exciting new category of electronic playthings. But the two companies could scarcely have been farther apart in their internal cultures. Atari was famous for its view that game developers were just cogs in a machine, no more important than the people who work on the assembly floor. But game creation, all the same, was the centerpiece of their operations. Mattel had a different vibe, as Don Dago found out when he arrived on day one of operations for the new in-house in television software unit in 1980. Here he is talking about Mattel's culture and atmosphere in those early days. You know, Atari was in many ways a purpose-built game company that Ted Dabney and Nolan Bushnell uh, had built originally to do coin-op and then to do home machines. Mattel was one of the largest and is one of the largest toy companies in the world. But back then, that was normal. Video games were seen as toys. That was toy stores were where they were sold. And so uh, Mattel saw that as, you know, once this looked like a good segment, they had to have an entry in that segment, but they wanted to have a quality entry because their brand was associated. They were not a cut-rate brand. They were associated with being a quality brand. And Hot Wheels and the Barbie dolls were their two biggest lines. Barbie, most of all. And so they, uh, they had the existing toy company, and electronics was made a separate division within the, within the company. And so all of the infrastructure, the big office building, everything like that, was already given over to the toy company. And so for electronics, our first offices were in a warehouse so uh, at the, it's been torn down now, but Mattel at that time had a, uh, a thing was a six-story office tower near the Los Angeles International Airport, and I mean five five minutes from the airport. And then they had sprawling warehouses and factories that were adjacent to that that had been built in the 1950s and the 1960s, and so. Uh, Come 1980, some of that space was being subleased out because they had already taken a lot of their manufacturing overseas, uh, even then 40 years ago. So a lot of a lot of manufacturing was done in Hong Kong. I think some was in Mexico. I think some may have been in Taiwan. And so uh, some of that space was still being used by Mattel for warehousing and operations. Uh, some had been uh, subleased, I think, to Northrop Grumman, which is an aircraft company. So there would be pieces of aircraft wings outside in the back. Uh, the, there was an old Hot Wheels factory in the back that had been used to make toy cars that had been decommissioned for that. And that I think somebody else was subleasing. And so we were put in the remaining big warehouse that was adjacent to the office tower. So we would walk in in the morning, the security guards would check your security clearance and ID because industrial es espionage at that point uh, certainly was a very real thing in the toy business. And so if you were from the toy company, you turned left and you went up the elevator in the 
six-story office building. If you were part of our little electronics group and the Mattel, the handheld games came out of the same division in electronics, the, the ones with little uh, LEDs that blinked uh, for American football and uh, baseball and, and other sports, those games were also off of that same division. So anybody in electronics turned right you went through double doors and you were in a big hallway in this warehouse and big forklifts would be coming through because it was still a working warehouse. And so if a if they saw you walking down the hallway and they were approaching, they go eh, eh, with the horn on their forklift because th at least they believed they had the right of way. And our job was to get out of their way. Their job was not to avoid us. Our job was to avoid them, which we very quickly figured out. You'd walk down a hallway and then on our right, there would be, there were eight foot high plywood walls that had some kind of connection, obviously, to the floor and so on. And you'd open a door in there and you would go into this open area that was, what would be the size of, that would be easy to describe? It was the size of you know, a medium-sized restaurant, including the back kitchen area, it was the size of it. And we were told that only like three weeks before we got there, before it had just been open with desks, and it had probably space for 30 people in small, very small cubicles. By today's standards, it would be small cubicles. And the cubicles had only come in about three weeks before. Before that, it had just been desks. And those were some engineers, industrial designers, uh, people associated with the handheld games were the ones already there. And so we were, we were mixed in with them since we were the next growth area in electronics. But the warehouse walls, the warehouse ceiling was like 20 feet high. And our warehouse, our walls were eight feet high. So you still heard everything going by in the hallway in our little area. You know, you still heard the forklifts and stuff like that. The good part of this was across the hallway and across hallway down from the main hallway was the toy testing lab where they would take new Mattel toys and test them to make sure that if you had a talk and tell educational toy that would teach you numbers of the alphabet, that you could pull the string on it a thousand times and it would still go C. C is for cat because, you know, high quality brand, you want to be reliable. And then once they had done this, they couldn't sell these very used toys in the company store, which had wonderful discounts and we all had access to. So what they did is they had a dumpster in, this, uh, in the side hallway, which will tell you how big the side hallway was. It could have a dumpster in it and the, and the forklifts could still go by it. And so they would come out when they finished testing, saying they, would, they knew that people would do dumpster dives if they just threw the toys in there. All the employees knew where it was and would do dumpster dives to take toys home to their kids. So what they had been told to do is they put on safety glasses. And so they would take out, here's your, here's the tested toy. And they would take it out and they would take it and they would smash it. Whack, whack, whack on the side of the dumpster until it broke. And then they'd throw the broken pieces in the dumpster so nobody can take it home and then say, I've got a substandard Mattel toy. Why did it wear out so fast? Well, it's because it was tested a thousand times. So they smashed them. But of course, part of the company culture, as we quickly found out, was 
we heard before anybody else did when stuff was being smashed on the dumpster because it sounded like somebody smashing toys, you know, 20 feet from your office because they were 20 feet from some of our offices. And so we would be the first ones to go out. We had another doorway out of the area and it was right next to the dumpster. So we we would wait for them to finish and then we kind of wait for the door to close and wait for it to die down for a moment. And then we'd go running out the door Especially those of us who had young kids would go running out the door and go look and see, you know, if you're not in a meeting or something and go, okay, I can lean in the door. Oh, I got this. I got that. Because very often the toys were well-made and a lot of times they would try and smash them, but they wouldn't succeed. And you'd take home an actual functioning beat up toy to your kid and it was free. And back in those days, you know, we weren't getting paid, you know, compared to what modern engineers make per capita and adjusted for inflation. We weren't making anywhere near that kind of money. And so getting something for free for your kids was, you know, that was a cool thing. So that gives you some idea of that. But then the uh, the culture was very much of, well, we know what the product line is. What what would be, what would you like to make? What do you think you could make well? And um, that isn't repeating of something in our line that somehow expands the diversity of our line. So we got to pitch you could get assigned something, but especially for the original five of us from day one, we got to pick the game we wanted to do. And if we could persuade management and marketing to sign off on it, then you could do the game you pitched. You can hear more about Don's time at Mattel in episode 29, Utopia, which covers the creation of one of the most influential games ever made, as well as Don's long journey to make it. I'll be back soon with episode 30, which will delve into a key moment in the life of another game design luminary, Chris Crawford. But in the meantime, you can find all my past episodes in your favourite podcast app or via my website, lifeandtimes.games. And you can support me financially so that I can dedicate more time to making this show and less time to freelancing by sending a donation via paypal.me slash or by subscribing to my Patreon at patreon.com slash life and times of video games. Until next time, my name is Richard Moss. This was a Life and Times of Video Games soundbite. Thanks for listening. I'll see ya.